0: What's up, y'all, and welcome into the Jack Vita Show. I'm your host, Jack Vita, back in action here on a Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. We had a great episode last week talking with Elise Meneker from the Marquee Sports Network covering the Cubs, a lot of baseball, and today we're actually going to take a trip down memory lane, talk about some classic 2000s. NBA, a little bit of 90s college basketball. We have an awesome guest joining us. Make sure you guys subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to The Jack Vita Show, wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. We are going to talk with Brian Erlacher next week, so you guys are going to want to make sure you're all subscribed so you don't miss out on that. And uh, I don't want to waste any more time. We have an awesome guest joining us today. He spent 11 years in the NBA, won a title on his way out, uh, and then he ended up competing on Survivor years later. He also was a, a, one of the best players that Kansas has had in terms of the Kansas Jayhawks. And he's on their all-time list for a lot of their records. Scott Pollard, welcome to the show. Thanks
1: for having me on, Jack. <clears throat> it's
0: great to have you here. I feel like, I, are you best known for kids do drugs? Do you think that's the one people remember you best for? Um I
1: don't know because it, it, it's funny. I've I've said a lot more controversial things, <laughs> but you, but that that happened like pre Google or pre social media kind of thing. So when people Google me, that's that's one of the things that comes up. When you, you take a look at some of my more recent tweets or interviews or whatever, they in in today's age, nothing you say that's that's uh, I don't know, not normal, sticks around anymore. It. It, it gets washed over by the next awful thing that some other awful person says. And so I think that that's that, – because that, my friends talk about it, They're like, why do people keep bringing that up? Like, it was a joke, and it was very obviously a joke. Yeah. But people keep bringing it up, and, like, especially people on Survivor. When I was on Survivor – Survivor fans, by the way, not all of you, but there's a good portion of Survivor fans that are just terrible.
0: Oh, you're totally like, agree. Thank you very much.
1: death threats. I got my wife got uh, stopped on the internet. She got private messages that she, they said, we hope your unborn baby dies. You people suck. Now I'm not talking about all survivor fans. Cause there's some fun ones. And I met some, a lot of people in person Met one the other night, and then they, you know, of course asked me a bunch of questions, but no, but that's, that's social media. And that's people being brazen behind a keyboard. But when I told a joke to the guys in the truck and it turned out it was on live TV in Cleveland when I said, hey, kids, do drugs. It was very obviously a joke. I never yeah. failed a drug test. I played with a lot of guys that failed every drug test. And so they're the ones in the commercials going, kids, you shouldn't do drugs. I'm like, ha, 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 ha. okay. Then I get to be opposite bill too. And I'm like, hey, kids, do drugs because I can <laughs> do drugs and I never failed drug tests. And so... That, that joke has lasted a long time, and I it's love great. it. It's a, it makes me laugh every time somebody yeah. tries to insult me. With it. Like, is this you? You said this about kids? Like, what a role model you are. Like, you have no idea. You <laughs> clearly just Googled me, and you, you're also the same person. It's usually, again, it's Survivor people, because basketball people know. And yeah. Survivor people, they Google me, and they're like, I played just as much as you did to get, to get that NBA championship ring. Yeah, yeah, it's because I had career-ending surgery. I played until I literally was not allowed to play anymore by the medical staff. Have you ever done anything like that? A little harder than Survivor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I I for one thought it was hilarious. And it's still one that me and my friends will reference and joke about. So I'm 27, Scott. So I grew up the era watching basketball when you played. I love that era. But I want to circle back before we talk about that. You mentioned just these crappy Survivor fans. And I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because that's just social media, right? That's just mm-hmm. – th- did you notice something different about the fan base of Survivor versus the social media fans of the NBA? Or do you think it was Survivor exclusively?
1: Um, you know, NBA fans, when I played, there, there wasn't the social media that, that exists now. So it was always in person. And I can imagine that there's probably NBA fans that give players death threats because they didn't win, hit the winning shot. So I can imagine there's a fringe port of of NBA fans that are like that also. Uh, But for my timeline in my life, uh, my NBA insults were in person. And of course, being the the court jester that I was, (laughs) I always won. You know, there there was never a time where a fan would get the best of me and piss me off. So I was always just like, I had an insult ready to go back to them because I was quick-witted and I could always go back to the fan in person. On social media again people Google it and they or they or they watch a reality TV show and and I'm again surprised that there's that many people that think it's real that that think that everything we do and say is sequential in real life. They they know that it when I was on it's shortened up now, but when I was on the show they like good Survivor fans know it's like three actual days of living gets edited down into 40 minutes episode because 20 minutes of commercials. And I've got like maybe five minutes of that forty minutes that I'm talking, right? They have lots of footage of me that they can clip together, and everybody that can clip together. I'm not talking about me, me, me. It's everybody on the show. And if you and I give speeches about this because I do speeches for wherever, you know, a lot of people hire me to go talk to them about team building or, or you know, self esteem or, or, you know, having a championship mentality, helping your other people, coworkers, everything, whatever, and. One of the speeches I give is is I specifically use that three days edited down to, say, 15 or 40 minutes. In your last three days, Jack, have you done something smart, something stupid, something goofy, told a joke that didn't play? Uh, you know, oh, yeah. it, there, there's, there's three days of your real life, and when you go into a business meeting or you go into work, are you going to let people think about you the, the worst Forty minutes, or are you going to make sure that you're you're trying to keep that forty minute edit of your life while you're at work uh, in a positive frame? Is it and it's something that you can control because it's real life. It's not somebody else behind your photo booth splicing the the footage. Like, oh, okay, he did this reaction, but we're going to put it in this completely different scenario because it makes it look worse or it makes it look better. Makes them look smart, you know. And so that's the part that I had a problem with on on. Uh, Survivor. And again, I got it, I got my money, I got way further than I thought I was going to get. I don't regret it. We had a baby because of it. My fourth kid is because I was on Survivor and we were apart, my wife and I were apart for the longest we'd ever been apart. (laughs) I got back off the plane, I was like, we're having a baby. And she was like, we're having a baby. So we both were like crying when I got my phone back and and it's because of Survivor. So would I do it again? No, because I don't need to. Uh, I already did it. Um, I don't tend to repeat things. Uh, But it's not because of any other thing other than I did it and I don't really feel the need to go back. Um, uh, It was a fun experience. And and so I I just want people to know, uh, you know, despite those tiny fraction of tiny gross keyboard warrior survivor fans that really aren't the fans of the game, because if they, they really understood reality TV, they would understand that people that are cast as the villain, like I was, I'm memorable. How many other Survivor cast members do you remember seven years later after their show aired? There's not you know, there's not very many that people keep harassing seven years later, so I take it as a compliment. I mean, some of them are off the charts, and so I just block them, which is hard for me. I usually don't block people, but some of them I just go, you know what? You're not even a real person. Uh, you're probably 12 years old, and I don't insult children, so <laughs> I just block them and, and uh, move about my day.
0: Yeah, you had a good response to someone the other day where you. I just I noticed you said like I don't believe you're a real person. Otherwise, I'd invite you into my house and we could have a real conversation. But you're probably not real. I love that. I thought that was great.
1: Yeah, well, that's and those are the people that that you know they assume that because I like certain tweets that I feel a certain way. I have friends on both sides of that subject, and I have children in that community. So people that want to have a conversation on social media about it. They're not going to get the story. And so that's where I stay. And no one's ever taken me up on it, Jack, surprisingly. You know, those haters, those people that come at me on the keyboard, they never ever say, uh, they never email me because my email is right there in my profile. Anybody can email me at any time. I responded to your email. And anybody can email me at any time and take me up on my challenge to come to my house. My wife is an incredible cook. That's why I'm fat. She'll <laughs> go to dinner. We'll talk about it. And we'll discuss. I guarantee you, that you will enjoy your time here and you'll come away smarter, and I will too. It'll be a mutual uh, experience. But again, these people don't want to grow. These people don't want, they wanna know what they think in their head is getting verified. They don't want to learn from somebody else's experience. They don't want to hear anything. They just want to say, say, say.
0: So you're telling me that the 5 foot 5 50 year old guy in his parents basement doesn't want to come meet a 6 foot 11 NBA champion? No, no not one person has taken me up on
1: it and, and and the invites go out almost weekly or monthly.
0: So, yeah, I think it's funny how the if you look at these people, the keyboard keyboard warriors, if you look at their profiles, it all says like love everybody Uh, Hate has no home here. Be so kind to everybody. And they're the ones that are spewing the most hatred.
1: And and I will say, Jack, I have run into some of those people in person. Like, I've been insulted online and actually run into that person. And they admit, like, hey, just want you to know, like, can I get a picture? But also, I was the one that said that. And please don't hit me. I'm like, I'm not a violent person. They're usually the first ones in person that come up and go, Can I get a picture? Can I get an autograph? And so that's why I usually don't come down too hard on people. I just go, man, they're super fans and they they say something, but then in real life, you know, people, (laughs) happens every day, every single day of my life, people go, whoa, you are huge. Yeah, (laughs) I'm big in real life. And so that's part of it too, is people say all these things and then they meet an NBA player in life or they meet a wrestler or they meet a football player, whoever it is that they thought that they were gonna keyboard warrior. And they're overtaken by the fear, the sheer size of the human that they thought they were going to insult uh, online. And then, of course, nature takes over. It's like, man, that person's pretty cool. I kind of want to get a picture with them. That, like <laughs> you, you see people going, you know, interacting with me, and like when I go to places for appearances, and, and all of a sudden that that kind of rush takes over, and there's no hatred. And so that's again why you know I, I mess with people online just because they mess with me, but I know in person they're not going to treat me that way.
0: I'm curious. I wasn't expecting to go in this direction already, but you mentioned getting all that hatred and yeah, you got an edit on survivor and there are a lot of people who are still bothering you all these years later. Is there a little bit of a camaraderie between you and maybe some of the other guys who, or girls who have experienced the same amount of hate? Are you guys like friendly with each other?
1: We're I'm. friendly with almost every single person on our cast. Um, you know, they voted me out. That was just
0: strategic, strategery.
1: <laughs>
0: um, yeah, Classic you know, SNL. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, so there,
1: there's, there's no one that, that was on our cast that I wouldn't say, Hey, if you want to, if you need a place to craft beer in Indiana, come on over. There's one, but even that one I would invite over. But, you know, we talk. Uh, some of us talk fairly regularly some of us it's just through social media and other seasons of Survivor kind of interact with a private Survivor you have to have been on the show to be on the Facebook page Uh, and I don't interact with that as much as I used to but um, you know there is some camaraderie there there is some of that behind the scenes but you know and, and again I hope people are still listening about this because I had a freaking blast on Survivor it was really fun Jason and I we're laughing our butts off. They had to edit things out that we did that were bad because we were laughing while we we're like they didn't want us to look like we were having fun. They wanted us to look like we were being jerks about it. So I was like, "This is awesome. We're doing this, and we're laughing. We're, we're like, we just need all their tools. What are they going to do?" And we're like giggling to ourselves. They didn't show that, you know. They didn't show us having an absolute blast making up songs as I was plucking a chicken. I sang a Cambodian chicken plucking song. You know, they didn't show that part because it didn't fit the, the character. So, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not bitter at all, okay? I just want everybody to understand, I loved watching that show. I had friends that were lifelong Survivor fans that wanted me to be on the show. I had never watched it before I went on. And they stopped watching it because they were like, that's not you. That's not you. you that's an edit. That's not you. I said, look, I did and said everything I did and said on the show. I did all that. And I had a blast. It was fun. This is not real. No one died. No one's one's even seriously injured. We had some scrapes and bug bites, and some people had some staph infection. But it was all on one island. It was all on the brain island that they all had staph infection. They all had to get surgery of some sort to cut out the staph infection after their show. So, I mean, there were some illnesses, but it wasn't anything that we caused by being bad guys. You know, it's reality TV. We had a blast. We made money, and they hit cut. The the, The show ended, and we all partied and flew home. You know, like it, it. People are like, "Oh, you, I can't believe you're you hate women." Like, I was trying to win a million dollars. I wasn't subjugating women. What are you talking about? Yeah. It's reality TV. I was playing a game show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's funny you mentioned that because it seems a little similar to the experience Brad Culpepper had when he played. He's a former athlete, and he got labeled a misogynist by the worst people on the internet. And he came on here a few months ago, and he's a great guy. I don't yeah. know if you met him.
1: I have not met him, but I think we're going to the same charity event in Wyoming this
0: summer. Sweet, yeah, yeah. All right, Scott, we'll come back for some Survivor stuff because I know most people came here for the hoop. So we'll do yeah. this, more Survivor. Yeah, more <laughs> Survivor stuff at the end. I, I do want to ask, what do you think you are best known for? If it's not the kids do drugs, uh,
1: in, in basketball terms. Yeah,
0: I mean, in uh, addition to playing, is it the funky hairstyles? Is it your physical? Play being a tough guy off the bench. What? How do you think you're best known for?
1: Well, it depends on where where the fans are. Uh, I think in Sacramento, I was most known for for the tough play off the bench and contributing to a championship run, which we didn't end up getting knocking down that door in, in Sacramento. Uh, in Boston, uh, you know, it was kind of the the end of my well, it was the end of my career, and so they didn't get to see a whole lot of me on the court. I did a whole lot off the court though. I did a show called Planet Pollard for a local Comcast channel. And I went around to different businesses and, and just got my hands dirty. Like, it just kinda, like, I made cannolis at Mike's Pastries. I worked at a kitchen and made um, little uh, gnocchi. And went around. I was a valet at the building that I lived in, you know, for a while. I was opening the door for people. So I did a lot of man-on-the-street stuff in Boston. So they might be, you know, like I walked a lot of places. I was the only player that lived downtown in Boston. So I walked a lot of places. And so I think people got to know me more as a person in Boston than anywhere else uh, because I had way more interaction with the fans there than anywhere else. Again, because I wasn't playing at the end of that. So I was just walking around or hobbling around on crutches or whatever. Um, And Indiana, that, you know, I, I was hurt most of the time I was here for three seasons. I was still recovering from the back that I fractured in Sacramento. And that's. Potentially why they traded me, and maybe the Pacers thought that it wasn't as bad as it was, but I had a fairly serious, fairly serious back injury, so I didn't play a whole lot here in, in Indiana, and I was projected to become, you know, a starter for this team and potentially make an all-star team, uh, and I think I could have had I been healthy, because it was the East in that era, I think I had a chance, uh, but I wasn't healthy enough to play, and I didn't get, my, my play didn't match with Jermaine O'Neal's very well, so they, they sw- swapped in Jeff Foster, and Jeff matched better with, with Jermaine, and that's fine. That worked out really well uh, for them. But uh, So, yeah, it just kind of depends on which fan base you're talking about, what I'm well-known for. <laughs> here in Indiana, now I live here, I've been here forever. Um, you know, they they tend to remember me for that was the last time the Pacers were good uh, and, and made a deep run in the playoffs. We got to the Eastern Conference Finals in my first year here. So, yeah. Um, you know, and of course, I get associated with the, with the malice in the palace, and that sucks because that was a terrible, terrible night. And I, I'm sorry I brought it up. I really don't want to talk about it unless you really want to talk about it. But yeah, we can. It's an awful, awful night, and so you know that that unfortunately is part of what people remember about my career here in Indiana. So again, uh, Cleveland went to the finals with LeBron. Everybody that finds out I played with Cleveland and played with LeBron. That's the first question: What's he like? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I didn't play with Michael Jackson, but it's pretty much the same thing, you know? Like, if you were Michael Jackson's bass player for a year, that's how <laughs> I know Michael Jackson, right? Like, I don't know LeBron. He was 24 at the time or whatever, you know? We, we hardly interacted unless we were on the court uh, or in the locker room. Uh, but, you know, so, yeah, it, it, long story, but the <laughs> short version is it depends on which fan base you're talking about, what they remember before. And, again, I don't even know. You have to ask people.
0: It's a good question. Yeah, it's a good point. We'll go through each of these stops one at a time, and I'll start by mentioning you met. You're in Carmel, Indiana. I think I n- mentioned to you. I'm a Valpo guy, so yeah. uh, Indiana basketball, baby. Yeah,
1: yeah. Hey, you know they they took the sport that Kansas created, and uh, they've done pretty well with it. They like to consider this the birthplace of basketball. And I, <laughs> uh, but I, I just I, I have to remind everybody that's a Hoosier. First of all, this is not the Midwest. It's not 1803. There's 50 states now. We're east of the Mississippi. We're in the Eastern Time. This is not the Midwest. Okay. First of all, that's your geography lesson. Not you, Jack, but anybody who's listening. <laughs> and second of all, the first head coach of the University of Kansas was the inventor of the game 200 and I don't know, something years ago. Or 100, I'm sorry, 124 years ago now. And he's the only one we've had eight head coaches. Bill Self is head coach number eight. And he and the inventor of the game is our only coach that had a losing record. So, Pretty impressive. You know, Kentucky talks about Adolph Rupp. Personally, you know, there's some issues there. But they named an arena after him, and they considered him the godfather of Kentucky basketball. He coached at Kansas first. He learned how to coach at Kansas. Uh, Dean Smith was on our 1952 championship team. He didn't play, but he was a Kansas Jayhawk. So the, the roots run deep for other programs that are blue blood programs now so anyway i'm sorry I, I get off on that because uh that subject because that's you know that's that's my jayhawks man and we just want to <laughs> still kind of flying high off of that
0: yeah how about how about them jayhawks this year fourth national championship pretty fun ride for you i have to think five yeah my bad this is yeah. number five if, if that,
1: yeah i think it's five it might be six but anyway
0: i thought it was i thought it was fifty-two, eighty-eight, 2008 and then 2022.
1: there are some of the that we had two in the era where they, they weren't the ncaa champions ah, but they were okay. the whatever it was called champions so of course kansas counts those but other yeah. people don't <laughs> indiana doesn't because they want to have more championships than
0: us <laughs> fair
1: um, no, it, it, that team was a, was a heartbreak team at times. Uh, you can see the flashes of brilliance at times. And, and Bill Self's teams are, are never the best in, in November. And that's what I love about it. They always get better. It's frustrating to watch sometimes. Uh, you know, everybody was on David McCormick to get better. I was one that his freshman year, I was like, he's way better than Doke, the, the previous center, U, U, Udoka. Uh, and he is. He's more skilled than Doke. He can shoot. He can pass. He can dribble a little bit. He can block shots. He has better timing. Doke was just such a more dominant athlete. Doke couldn't shoot, dribble, or rebound. He's not playing a whole lot in the NBA. Uh, because he doesn't have those particular skills, he's just a great athlete, and a big guy in a year or his time at Kansas when he didn't have a lot of big guys he was playing against. David had some big guys he was playing against. Baylor kept bringing in seven-footers. Texas kept bringing in seven-footers. And David was banging against guys uh, and and didn't quite have uh, the the development that everybody hoped he would against bigger talent. Now, was he amazing in the, in the, in the championship game? Absolutely. He had some huge monster plays in the fi- semifinals and the finals. Uh, so, you know, he finally had some great games. But throughout the season, God, there were times people were like, did they even, did they even make the tournament? I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. If it's-. <laughs> You know, they they were so hit and miss at times. And then, of course, as I said, Bill Self always seems to pull it together for tournament time and get the team playing their best. And this team had enough talent on it to get all the way and and take it. And I was nervous as hell for the Villanova game because the last time we played Villanova in in the Final Four, I was there in San Antonio commentating for TNT. And so leading up to the game, everybody was like, you're not going, are you? I was like, no, no, I'm not going anywhere to, go to the Final Four. I even had to tweet it out. I was like, Jayhawk Nation, I'm not going. I put on a shoot. I want nothing to do with this. You are not blaming me for this. And so we won. And so now I'm going to be like, next time we go to the Final Four, am I going to a lot back? Is it cool? Guys, guys, can I come? Can I, am, I, am I all right? Uh, but as long as it's not Villanova, we'll be all right. And with Jay Wright's departure, the chances of that happening are, are slim because what a coach that guy is.
0: What a coach! And you played at Kansas in '93 to '97, coached by Roy Williams. Three sweet, three sweet sixteen appearances, one Elite Eight. And for those who are listening, some of the teammates you played with: Jacques Vaughn, Ray LaFrentz, Greg Ostertag, and of course, the truth, Paul Pierce. What was he like in college? We called him Bambi when he
1: got there. He was only 16 when he got to campus his freshman year. He turned 17. Uh, I think I think his birthday's October or something like that. So. He was really young and he was just all elbows and knees it was like Bambi on ice you guys are young you probably haven't even seen the original Bambi but um, oh, I have I have okay well good thank you thank <laughs> you for being that one guy your age group that's seen Bambi <laughs> <laughs> um, but for those uninitiated it's like a deer on ice he just he was all elbows and knees and he was good now, I'm not saying he wasn't good but you could tell that he had a lot of room to grow he had to grow into his body and we watched it live I mean, just watching a guy turn into a superstar live was was quite a treat. But, you know, Jock Vaughn, Rick LaFrance, Paul Pierce, and myself, we were starting five my senior year, all of us first-round picks. Uh, and, I, you know, Jared Hess was the one that didn't get us a, a first-round pick. He played all season with his broken wrist our senior year. And uh, that probably hurt his chances because, you know, it's hard to shoot with broken wrist. <laughs> so. He didn't have time to heal in order for the, the NBA draft camps, you know, and all that. So, uh, but, you know, he's a, he's a great NBA, or uh, sorry, college coach right now. He's at the University of Stanford, um, doing a good job out there, and, and I'm happy for him. But the reason I mentioned those guys is, you know, I was like the seventh option. I played behind Greg Oster I came off the bench for two seasons behind Greg Oster and then I only started my junior and senior year. And with, without trying to sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but people are like, well, you were just a role player. Yeah, I was. But I scored over 1,000 points in Kansas. Behind Greg Ostertag for two years, Ray Fronts taking every shot he thought he could possibly take, and then more. <laughs> Paul Pierce stealing all my rebounds. John in <laughs> and sneaking my rebounds. And then all I did was turn around and throw the ball to somebody uh, to, to get a fast break going, and then I would try to outrun everybody so I could touch the ball once in a while. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it's it was an incredibly talented group of dudes. And you know, we have talked about it until we're blue in the face, all of us. And we just there was just a big article written recently for the Athletic uh, about that team, and it was all of us interviewed. And we all we all were incredibly disappointed. So many tears after that game. We lost our senior year uh, because we felt like we were the team. We were number one from start to finish uh, to get Roy Williams his first championship, and it really broke all of us uh, because we wanted to get him his first championship. We he deserved it. And we felt like we had earned it. Jock came back for his senior year. He was projected to be a lottery pick after his junior year. Then he broke his wrist going into our senior year. And so Ryan Robertson stepped in, who also became a teammate of mine for a year in Sacramento. I mean, we had NBA talent coming off the bench on that team. Billy Thomas played for a couple of, we had a couple short stints in the NBA. He was our backup two guard behind Jared Hass. So just an incredibly talented team. And, and for us to not win it for Roy, we all felt incredibly disappointed
0: do you miss the old big 12 big 12 is going to look a little different especially next year you got four new teams coming in two teams leaving what do you think about old big 12 versus new big 12 well i played
1: the the last year of the big eight that's how old i am.
0: oh wow <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was my junior year and then the big 12 was the first year was my our senior year so uh i'm that old. <laughs> i i do miss the big eight i missed the, the the original big 12 uh my opinion is Kansas needs to jump and get into the Big Ten, like yesterday. Uh, I know Kansas people don't want to hear that, and they're like, but what about the rivalry with Kansas State? There isn't one. We have dominated the football. If you, you can Google this. We've dominated the football series until recent years. Now, Snyder's been a heck of a coach. He's a great coach. I would really want him to coach my kid uh, if he was younger because my kid's not going to be there <laughs> quick enough. Uh, <laughs> but – um, you know, there there's no rivalry with Kansas State. There just isn't. And so to say, oh, we broke that rivalry. Missouri already broke the, the only rivalry Kansas had in basketball. That was the only team that we didn't dominate my four years in school. We split. I think we split evenly, 50-50 with them. Uh, and that, that was there was nobody else like that. And there isn't anybody else like that now at Kansas. It's it's really Kansas runs the table. If Kansas doesn't win it, we tie uh, with somebody or we've lost, I think, one or two uh, to to an outright champion uh, in the entire existence of the Big 12. Uh, but that's not really why I don't, I'm don't. i not saying that we're too good for the Big 12. I'm just saying that the teams changing in uh, aren't going to make the Big 12 more good for recruiting.
0: Uh, so prestigious.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's going to be four super conferences and Kansas has got to get into one of those. Because Big 12 isn't going to be one of them. With those additions of those teams, my opinion is, and again, two of my brothers went to BYU. My whole family's Mormon. I'm, I'm from Utah. I get it. Like, they love their football program, and, and yay for them. Good job. But as far as nationwide luster, no one cares about BYU, just Utah does. And so, to, to try to say that that adds luster to the Big 12 and makes them a power conference, I disagree. And, um, so I think that, that Kansas getting into the Big Ten makes the most sense uh, geographically and selfishly. I live here, <laughs> so I would really like the chance to see them a lot more often if they had to come play Indiana and Purdue twice a year uh, or even once a year. It's they're One's ones an hour south and one's an hour north for me, so I'd, I'd be happy to do that, and I could drive up to Michigan and even for a couple of those games. So uh, selfishly, I would really love that. I love that Coach Self did at home and home. Uh, with Indiana to maybe test those waters to see about that, uh, because while Indiana is on the on the build, um, I think it's a it's a good you know touching our toes in the water of the Big Ten to see if that's maybe a market that Kansas would want to get into. Uh, obviously, the games with Michigan State that we have with uh, it's Duke, Michigan State, um, Kentucky, and Kansas, uh, we do that every year. Uh, you know that's a little bit of it too, but that's you know an SEC school and an ACC school. But the Michigan State games always seem to be good. Uh, So, again, I'd I'd like to see Kansas jump into the Big Ten.
0: I'd love to see that, too. I think that would be an – I mean, that would make an even more awesome basketball conference. I think you're –
1: And I think that our football team is on the – we've been saying it for 20 years. I get it. But (laughs) uh, this coach I really do believe in and I do believe that we've, we've got things headed in the right direction for football. Uh, so that we wouldn't be going into the Big Ten and, and going Ofer like we've been doing over in the, in the Big Twelve, uh, I think that we actually are getting some talent, getting some players, getting some consistency uh, in our football program, and uh, we could, you know, not immediately but but quickly compete with the Big Ten football side of, of things. And basketball brings a lot of lot to the table, so I think we're an attractive university. I think we're like number twenty seven in income uh, in the whole. Uh, of all Division One colleges, and that's pretty incredible considering our football program doesn't do that well. So uh, I think that conferences should be clamoring for Kansas.
0: Be great to see. All right, so you get drafted by the Pistons, and you're only there for a year. We won't talk about, really, the Pistons, unless you got anything interesting from that experience.
1: You know, I, 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 I'm used to playing with people that are not me. I'm used to playing, but when I got there, I was the only white guy in the locker room besides Doug Collins, you know, and so I was in there, and, and, and Rick Mahorn was great, man, one of my best friends. I love that guy. We haven't talked in years, but I know if we ran into each other, we would just hug it out and just have a great conversation. He's a great dude. He was my guy. He, he bullied me all year long, you know, gave me the rookie hazing, taught me a lot about footwork and how to play in the NBA, um, but yeah, it was a learning experience for me in, in Detroit. Uh, I didn't do much on the floor. Uh, I was – I thought I was more ready for the NBA, uh, but I butted heads with Doug Collins so much, I, I just started thinking I wasn't NBA material. I, I did not like the way – he wanted me to play a certain way, and I was like, well, Coach, this is how I play. I've played this way my whole life. I'm going to try to change. I'm going to try to be what you want me to be, but this is how I play basketball. And he kept telling me, oh, you want to be a freak? You want to be this? I was like, I, what are you talking about? He was challenging my manhood. and. and uh, I was like, I just want to play basketball. He's like, Why are you painting your nails? I'm like, They're not painted. Just that—that that was last year. That was in college. This is now. Let's 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 focus now. I'm a man. You're a man. Let's play basketball. Anyway, he got fired halfway through the year, and Alvin Gentry, the official, uh, um, the guy that that everybody has to be their interim coach, uh, he took over, and and uh, we had a good finish to the year. But yeah, I I wasn't surprised at all when the lockout ended that I got traded for Christian Lehner to another, <laughs> to another team.
0: They wanted to reunite Leitner and Grant Hill I guess, huh?
1: Yeah, maybe, I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm curious. I I did think of that as you're talking about that team. You were teammates with Grant Hill that year, and I'm did you think at the time, did you think this guy, I mean obviously he had a great career, but before injuries he looked like he was going to be maybe the next Michael type of great player. Did you see some of that in his game? Did you think he was going to be something that he he ended up not being quite as big as if he had stayed healthy.
1: I totally agree. I think that his ankles definitely slowed him down uh, from being great. He still was great, uh, but um, I I loved playing with Grant Hill. I learned a lot from him as well. His parents were great people. They were really nice to me uh, through my rookie year there. And, uh, you know, the, the thing about Grant was he was so gifted. And when he felt good, nobody could stop him. Like, there wasn't, because he was so long. That was the thing, is, is Michael was 6'6", Grant was 6'9". And that's a big difference. In basketball, you know, in the NBA, we're all basically the same height. You know, we're all typically 6'6", to like, 7 feet. So when you have somebody that's like Grant Hill, before LeBron, LeBron is a 6'9", also, but, you know, Grant Hill could dribble, pass, shoot, uh, and just fly when he was healthy. And so, yeah, it, he could, he had all the tools to be, one of the all-time greats had he not had the, the bad injuries. And so, um, you know, I don't think he looks back on it uh, with disappointment. I think he had a great career. I, I watched him be great, and I was always cheering for him even when I was not on the team with him. But, um, yeah, the, that's definitely one of those coulda, woulda, shoulda. I played with another one of those guys, Chris Webber. I think Chris in, in Sacramento, uh, you know, had he not had his bad knee, uh, coulda, like, I I say it and and people say, you played with LeBron, but Chris was the most gifted player I ever played with. Uh, He could do everything on a basketball court when he wanted to and make it all look easy. And he's another one. Just, I would put them both in the same category. Two of them that could have been maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time, had they been healthy.
0: That's very interesting. I wasn't expecting you to go in that direction in terms of Chris Webber being the most gifted player that you ever played with.
1: Well, he just, he made everything look so easy. You know, when I played with LeBron and I watched LeBron still, he's a brute. He physically em, like enforces his will on people, which is an incredible talent also. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to take anything away from LeBron, but Chris had the finesse. Chris could go around people. He didn't have to go over people. And probably because of his knee, he had to learn that, that skill. And in our era of, of the play, you could, you could hit people. You can't hit people now. Back then, you could hit people in the 90s and the early 2000s. You could hit people. I was one of the guys that hit people. Yeah. I know this. And so Chris had to figure out a way to be uh, athletic and fly past people with a bad wheel, but he could also just – he could pass that ball. You thought he was going to the basket, and all of a sudden, it's Magic Johnson time, and it's behind his back, and it's a perfect pass to whoever. Uh, and, and so – that's where the the passing, shooting, rebounding, blocking shots, Chris could do every single thing on a basketball court, and his face never changed. It, it was effortless for him. LeBron, it's effort, and he's in, in physically probably the most dominant one-on-one player ever, uh, besides Will Chamberlain. But Shaq? Chris made everything look so easy.
0: I said Shaq in that cat conversation, too? Oh, absolutely.
1: Shaq, Shaq... Um, I'd like to think Shaq would be dominant in the 60s, but they played in Chuck Taylors, man. <laughs> I don't know if they could have made Chuck Taylors in 22s. Shaq might have been barefoot out there. I don't know. But, um, but Shaq, Shaq isn't the conversation of most dominant one-on-one player, absolutely. It's hard to rank people, but when I watch footage of Wilt, Wilt was an absolute freak athlete at 7'1", 7-2, high jump one sprinted on the 100 meters and won 100-meter races at the Kansas Relays at the University of Kansas. I mean, he could do everything with the basketball. I think Wilt would be better in today's game because he was such an athlete and they could hit you. Talk about being able to hit people. They could really hit you in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, they, they've cleaned it up quite a bit, and Will, Will's famous for talking to Michael Jordan and saying to Michael, straight to his face, they changed the rules of the game to stop me. They changed the rules of the game to make you look good. <laughs> I can't fight that. I cannot fight that because I saw the changes of the rules that Will changed. They had goaltending because of Will. He blocked every single shot. He just went up and <laughs> caught it, brought it down, yeah. and sprinted to the other end and dumped it. He used to dunk his free throws. He'd just take a couple steps back. That's why you have to stay in the circle. It's because of Will Chamberlain. Three seconds in the key, Wilt Chamberlain. Offensive, defensive, three seconds in the key because of Wilt Chamberlain. They made the key wider because Wilt just stayed right next to it and can still dunk from outside the key. So they had to make the key wider to offset. They they, they changed a whole lot of rules to slow Wilt down. I Sorry, Jack, I, I get off on tangents. I don't know if you can
0: tell. I that. love it, man. It's great. <laughs> it's a fountain of basketball knowledge. I'm, I'm just enjoying listening to you. So anyway, um, most
1: dominant all time, Wilt uh, but the most talented player I ever played with, Chris Weber and uh, LeBron and Grant Hill uh, obviously I-, I wouldn't pick one over the others other than that LeBron has had an incredibly long career and been incredibly lucky with his health uh, whatever he's injecting I want some because <laughs> he and he's still flying like he's 23 years old so I don't know what he's on but I, I want some
0: you think he's using any kind of PEDs?
1: I, look, I I wouldn't use that term because the technology now, uh, just knowing what I know about the human body, the technology now is not it's not steroids. There's something, I don't know what it is. Uh, my guess is that Tom Brady is also uh, using something now, but I I don't know the terminology. I know that you can inject your own blood back into your joints, and there's all kinds of. Uh, different procedures that don't involve steroids. uh, And I I wouldn't even say they're illegal. I think steroids should be legal for professional athletes. So let's, we can save that conversation for another time. (laughs) But I I think any athlete that wants to, that knows the risks and has direct access to the best medical technology that there is uh, and understands their risk versus reward, I think they should be able to do whatever they want uh, to make themselves have a longer career or recover better or feel better in their old age. (laughs) <laughs> um, because everything hurts now and so I, like I said I, I say it in jest but I, I do say it seriously if I could move better on a daily basis I would take whatever it is and it, it, you know barring certain side effects because there are certain side effects I have to avoid at this point in my life but uh, so yeah I, I believe that there are things out there, treatments uh, remedies Whatever that make people recover quicker, uh, just like steroids, they make people bounce back faster, and that's really the the argument in the NBA. I I will leave other sports out of it, but in NBA, it's not really about strength. The steroids aren't making anybody stronger or faster or more athletic or jump higher or shoot better. It's about recovery, and that is it. It is 100 percent about recovery. If something you can put in your body makes you recover faster, so you can be back to 100 percent quicker uh, or the next night. Um, then, yeah, that should be legal as long as it doesn't kill you. (laughs) And so I I just – I find it very difficult to believe that players like Tom Brady and LeBron – and there's probably some others that you could count on that have had 20-year careers in professional sports. I just – I find it hard to believe that they're that healthy and that effective at their age without something going on uh, behind the scenes legal or not and i'm assuming it's illegal because again i don't believe it's steroids at this point i believe there's technology that exists that's more along the lines of natural uh injections of your own hormones or your own uh cells or whatever it is again i don't know the technology i'm not a doctor but i believe there's something out there
0: scott so then you get traded excuse me one second sorry So you get traded over to the Kings in 1999, or sorry, no, you get traded to the Hawks, Mm -hmm. and then you get waived by the Hawks, picked up by the Kings, and then, yeah, you talk about just how that's a fan base that really appreciated you, adored you, had a love for you. What was that run like, those four years with that team? It, It was
1: literally from the bottom to the top for me, personally. Uh, that was my third team in two years. Uh, I got traded to the Atlanta Hawks, never played a game for them, got cut knowing that I was signing to the Sacramento Kings because they, they gave me a warning. The, the Hawks were like, look, we're only keeping 12 players on the active roster and you're not one of them. So we can cut you or we can try to test the NBA rules on this. And I said, hold on. My agent called, uh, so called around. He said, there's four teams that want you right now. I think the best bet is Sacramento. So I went back into the Hawks that cut me. I go to Sacramento. I met them actually in Philadelphia on the East Coast Swing, Uh, and so I played my first game for Sacramento Kings in Philadelphia, and um, it was crazy, though, because, yeah, I was at the bottom. I was thinking, well, all right, I'll go back and finish my master's and become a teacher. You know, I was was already planning my post-NBA career because I was just a few credits shy of my master's when I graduated from Kansas. I was going to be a high school social studies, government teacher, uh, history teacher, and that was my backup and so when i got to my third team in two years in sacramento i'm going well all right i've got this contract plus next year because the hawks had to pay me my third year of my rookie contract they cut me so that contract was guaranteed so i knew i had one more year coming but i only had a that short season contract with sacramento and so i'm just kind of making post nba career plans in my head and i'm just like well i guess i'm not an nba player and i kept working and i kept working and i got an opportunity finally uh, cracked in the lineup, had some success against Karl Malone, uh, had some success against Shaq. Uh, you know, and again, right place, right time. I, I can't say that if I was in the East still at that point in my career, would I have I've stuck around? I think it had to do with the fact that Tim Duncan was in the West, Karl Malone was in the West, Shaq was in the West at that time. And I was a guy that could go in and mess with these big guys. And then Yao Ming comes into the league and I could mess with him too. And so, I think that's where I kind of got my value as an NBA player because finally I got a place that that understood the way I played basketball, let me play basketball the way I play. And it also fit within the team framework of we're just going to get you guys the ball and put you in good scenarios and let your talent take over because we had Jason Williams, Mike Bibby, Tony Delk, then Bobby Jackson, John Barry. I mean, we had so many pieces out there. know Turpelo
0: I'm talking about the bench guys uh besides jason gerald wallace another one huh gerald wallace
1: yeah i mean we he was a rookie and we could see talk about bambi and seeing greatness in somebody i mean he was exactly just a taller version of michael jordan in our opinion and you know he didn't there, there was something missing and we never knew what it was there was just something that he just didn't get over that hump to become an absolute legend but he had all the tools to become one uh but uh you know, we had so many different pieces in and out of that that framework that came in, helped us get better. And then they tried to upgrade or, or try to keep them around, depending on the chemistry of it. But I mean, literally, yeah, from the bottom me thinking, OK, I'll just go back, get my teaching degree and I'll be a teacher. And I'll, I already had bought a house in Kansas that I could afford based on what I was making at that point. Uh, so I wasn't living beyond my means. And that that was home in the off season anyway. Uh, So I was making those plans and then we go on a run and we make the playoffs for the first time in forever in Sacramento that first year. We get bounced, but then we go back the next year and make the playoffs again. We win a first round playoff series for the first time in franchise history against the Phoenix Suns and, you know, all the way to the Western Conference Finals. So, uh, yeah, for me personally, it was from the bottom of the top of my career uh, and probably extended my career for the rest of the the tour back in the Eastern Conference just because of what I had done with the Sacramento Kings uh, and the reputation I had earned for myself as as a guy that will come in and fear no one, uh, and I can also contribute on offense when I need to.
0: (laughs) Very cool. So I got a question from a listener here. CJ Rivas would like to know, how would the 2002 Kings fare in today's game? Feels like they were ahead of their time.
1: Uh, Yeah, because everybody can shoot threes. Chris Webber, a lot of you can shoot three. So, yeah, they were they were some of the first big men uh, to do what all the big guys are expected to do now. And I remember Rick in our coach, chair he was like, Scott, you need to shoot more. I know you can knock it down. I was like, yes, I can. And I do that in the offseason. I go back to Kansas, and they're like, wow, I didn't know you could dribble and shoot. I'm like, I'm playing against the 450 best in the world every night. You know what I'm really good at? I'm really good at knocking down your player, getting you open, and if my guy goes on to you, you throw it to me and I dunk it. I'm really good at that. Better <laughs> at that than Reggie Miller is. So when I'm playing with Reggie Miller, I want Reggie Miller shooting the three and me going to the rack and getting the rebound if he happens to miss. And um, so that was a constant thing that people are always like, "Oh, you would never be able to play in today's game." Oh yes, I could. And that that 2002 Sacramento Kings team was ahead of our time. We regularly put up 110, 115 points. We played against the Dallas Mavericks of that era, and it was always a track meet. That would be the closest thing, in my opinion, to today's game, would be the, the Dallas Mavericks series with the, with those guys, because we always ran. I mean, it was just 115, 120, we scored 61 points and a half. Nowadays, that's no big deal, but back then it was a franchise record, uh, 61 and a half uh, against the Mavericks. So, you know, it yes, that team would do very well in this league because we had bigs that could shoot. Uh, But also, I think we would have a different dimension because we still had positions. Whereas today is more of a positionless game. We could all, I could go out and guard a point guard in today's game for a second or two. Not saying I would do it the whole game. I know my limits, but I can switch out onto a point guard and slow them down. Because of my length, I can affect the shot. But in today's scenarios, I don't see a whole lot of guys that can guard Chris Webber in the post and out on the floor. Uh, They think they can, uh, but nobody could guard Vlade. Nobody. Shaq couldn't guard Vlade. Uh, Vlade was slippery, and he could go in the post. If if you didn't want to guard him out on the three or if he could guard him out on the three, he'd go in the post. Uh, And so we had a lot of different dimensions. We had shooting guards that shot the ball. When you threw the ball to them, it was going in. They didn't have to drive across and shoot from the logo to get an open three. We got them open because that's how our, our, our offense works. So uh, that's why I think that you know people are, have have short term memory about how the game was played, and and I would say the same thing about the era before mine. Uh, you know, there's different teams that would dominate in our era, the, the era I played in, uh, because of the way they played. Those, those '80s Celtics teams were just ridiculous. There's nobody that could stop them from running. They hardly put the ball on the floor in fast breaks. It was always just long outlet passes pass, pass, layup, um, you know, and that's in the eighties, uh, the, 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 that Celtics franchise and I could go on and on, but um, <laughs> yes, our 2002 Kings could absolutely play in this league today. And I think we would be very good in this league today.
0: Of course, 2002, I have to ask about that game six the Western conference finals for those who are listening, who are maybe younger and they don't remember There were a lot of questionable calls. I specifically remember the one where they called a foul on you when you were guarding Shaq and it looked like you didn't even touch him. And then they shot 15 more free throws than you. Tim Donahue, this official who got busted for uh, being tied with the mob and influencing games that he was betting on games he was officiating, he comes forward and he says that that game was fixed by the association they wanted it to go to seven games they wanted the lakers now tim donahy given his what he did maybe not the most uh reputable source but i'm curious what was going through your head in that game as you guys were on the short end of many many calls
1: it it was it, it was hard to overcome that. And, and really we had a hangover from that game into game seven. And so uh, there's a couple ways I want to answer First of all, I want to say we earned home court advantage throughout the playoffs. We had game seven at home and we crapped the bed. We, we, we had the honor of going back after game six and playing in front of the best fans in the world at the time uh, in our home arena and take care of business in game seven. And we didn't, we played terrible that game. Now, you can call it a hangover from Game 6 because we couldn't get over that we were playing against eight people on the court. But we still should have won Game 7. No matter what happened in Game 6, you can talk about the conspiracy, you can talk about all that stuff, but we still had Game 7 and we failed. So I will always say we had Game 7, whatever you think about Game 6. Now, Game 6, it was ugly. It wasn't fair. It didn't seem right. There, was, there were too many examples, and I don't even have time to go into all of them, but there's too many examples of things that were not right about that game. There's just no way that Vlade Divac, Chris Weber, Scott Pollard, and Lawrence Funderburg, all, all well, the three of us fouled out, Lawrence ends up guarding Shaq at the end of the game. Lawrence Funderburg's 6'9", 240 pounds, tripping wet. Like, the, he can't guard Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, not his fault, it's a size thing. And three of us foul out, and Shaq's still in there with two fouls. That's impossible. That, that's just impossible. You, you, you will never, see an nba game where three big men foul out on one team and the other one only has two fouls they tend to balance out typically because they want things to look normal um now as far as tim donahue's uh comments i will say he says some things that are absolutely factual that i know from every year i was in the nba at the beginning of the year the referees would come in and talk to us about the focuses for the season Guys, you've been carrying the ball a lot. We're going to we're gonna hit you on training camp. We're going to call it too much because we want you to get used to it so that it doesn't become a problem in the regular season. Guys, you've been traveling too much. We're going to – you know, whatever it is, they came in and they gave us this speech, and they would rest the the preseason games more tight to get us used to what they were told by the league office to focus on. Speaking of, that's where kind of Tim Donahue's correct, factual statements come into play. Every game – Every referee gets a, gets an email with highlights they did well on and things that they messed up on. So let's say you're heading into game six and you just refed a different game. You didn't ref game five, but they send you some clips of Shaq posting up three seconds in the key. And they, and they say to the referees, keep an eye on that because he's been getting away with too many three seconds in the key. You go into game six and all of a sudden Shaq has three turnovers in the first half or the first quarter. Because you're calm. it's in your head. It's not the NBA saying, hey, make sure the Lakers lose, make sure that the Kings win. It's them saying in a very legal and defendable way, well, look, we showed video evidence of Shaq spending three seconds in the key too many times, and that's all we were doing is trying to keep our referees accountable. So they can defend themselves. The NBA league office can defend themselves against any allegations of impropriety, because that's a matter of practice among the referees association. They do that every game. So again, when you plant a nugget in a referee, a human's mind, and you happen to have the correct referees that are used to getting those nuggets and taking that cue from the league office, huh, I get what's going on here. They don't have to spell it out. They don't have to say, make sure the Lakers win so we can go to seven games. All they have to do is say, the King's big men have been fouling a lot of people lately. Keep an eye on that. And all of a sudden, Chris Webber, a lot of e Scott Pollard fouled out in one game, which has never happened before or since.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that, would you say that is corrupt or not corrupt?
1: Look, in a, as I just tried to explain, mm-hmm. I don't think it's overtly corrupt, but I also believe that there are factual policies in place to hopefully guide series into six and seven games, because that makes more money. So I wouldn't say, yeah, the mob controls it, but I think it's good for every single NBA owner. If every single series goes seven games and as long as the correct team wins, what's the harm in it making, making it go seven games. It's just that in 2002, The correct team didn't win, or did they? Because the Nets were waiting on us, and nobody was watching the Nets that year. No. Not their fault, but nobody was watching the Nets. And is the Kings, one of the smallest markets in the NBA, playing the Nets in the NBA finals, gonna get the ratings that the Lakers and the Nets are gonna get? No, they aren't. So then you can start going in the conspiracy road, and I don't do that. I just talk about what I know. Factually, those NBA referees get emails before and after every game, things they should focus on, things they should have done. And this is straight from them telling us every single year in the preseason that that is how they are operating. And so that that right there tells you it's really easy to put a nugget in somebody, a human's mind going into a game. I should probably keep an eye on this. That's not overtly trying to control it. It's covertly putting a nugget in a human's mind and humans make mistakes.
0: Do you think there's any of that in Survivor?
1: Uh, oh, absolutely. It's reality TV. So the way they get you in Survivor is the testimonials. That's the only time you're alone with the camera rolling. And it's the only time a producer talks to you. No other time are you spoken to other than you're locked down because there's no cameras on. So they call it lock. All you're allowed to do during lockdown is sit there and look at the ground. And there's producers watching you to make sure you're not interacting with something. Because they don't want you any gameplay to happen uh, without them catching it on camera. Testimonials are the other time, the only time that you're on camera, but alone with no other cast members can hear you, and there's a producer directly asking you questions. So that was my game, and I think that's how I got so far, is I would watch people leave for testimonial. If it was my good buddy and we had a good relationship and they go to testimonial and they come back and they're not looking me in the eye, the producer got to them. The producer is saying, you sure you can trust God? You sure? Because he said this about that. Because they tried to do it to me too. They would say, you know, Jason was saying this to blah, 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 and or or Ty said this to blah, blah, blah. Are you sure you can trust him? Because they try to make sure that the game veers spe- in and out so it's watchable if everything happens according to plan how fun is that to watch yeah is it exciting if nobody throws all the tools in the in the forest and hides them from somebody and then puts the fire out is that exciting television yes it is if nobody does anything like that nobody and everybody just goes hey we have a deal and we just you know nobody backstabs anybody or blindsides in the tribal uh then it's a boring tv show so of course they get you in the testimonial and the producer specifically. And if nobody cracks, you all go back. And that's how we knew. We, were, we would talk about it and they would say, shh, stop. But if if they said, hey, we have to do another round of testimonials, I would, I would laugh. I'd be like, oh, so everybody wants to stick to the plan. All right. Hey, guys, try to stick to the plan. Because that's the only reason we would go. We'd go testimonial round and you have to wait for everybody to go. And if, and if they said, okay, we're gonna do another round of testimonials, it's because they didn't get what they wanted. The producers did not get the, the shift that they wanted the, the direction of the game to go. Uh, and so people don't know that and that's fine. And that's why people are like, oh my gosh, this guy was such a jerk or this girl was such a bitch, whatever, you know, um, it it's, it's intentional and it's because it's reality TV. It's got to be exciting. It's got to be, oh, I never saw that. Oh my gosh! That that girl said that. I can't believe that. Oh, totally flipped on their whole tribe. I can't. You know, that's what makes it exciting, and that's what gets the ratings. And so, you know, once you understand that, then you can understand kind of what I was talking about earlier, which is the three days being compressed into one one-hour episode, forty minutes of airtime, and your character gets ten to fifteen minutes max of that forty minutes. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to to splice all that together and take out everything that that one person said that was smart and make them look stupid. You can do that to pretty much every human being on the planet. In the last three days, all of us have said some not so smart things or some really intelligent things or some not so funny things or some funny things. And when you have that footage and you can edit it down, uh, again, we said everything we said, we did everything we did. I am not blaming the edit. I'm just trying to explain the edit. It's more exciting thinking that Scott Pollard, retired NBA player, is a jerk than it is him being a nice guy and everybody getting along and everybody thinking, "Uh oh, he might win the game, so we got to vote him out. It was a lot easier to get me voted out when I was portrayed as a villain than if they had shown me singing the Cambodian chicken plucking song and, you know, making everybody laugh with jokes and singing all the time. They couldn't have me singing because I kept singing Frank Sinatra songs, and they come <laughs> over like, "Shut up! We don't have the rights to those songs." I'm like, "We're here. You guys are doing testimonials over there." And they're like, "They're like, your voice is huge. We can hear you across the island." And <laughs> so then I had to start making up songs, and they had to edit those out too because I would they would hear me singing in the background, and again, that didn't fit with the character I was being edited as. So they had to cut. They had to tell me to stop singing too. So you know, there was a whole lot of things in there. Again. Loved it. Had a blast. Laughed my ass off. Most of the time I was on the island. Never was in fear of actual sickness. uh, Never was in fear of actually dying, nor was anybody else. There were some tough times, but, you know, some of us have been through way worse stuff and actually lost people that that matter. And so when you're talking about me being on an island in paradise and (laughs) being paid to be there, I had an amazing vacation. <laughs> I lost twenty. I lost forty six pounds in twenty eight days. I need to kind of go on the survivor diet right now. I could use
0: that. <laughs> I can do that too, man. I would love that. I'd just love to fast forward forty days. I'm twenty pounds lighter. That'd be that'd be great. But uh, I want to ask you. So you get traded over to the Pacers in the Brad Miller sign and trade deal. You mentioned that you were expecting, you were hoping to start and maybe be an all star, and then you had the injury issues. Now, R- Reggie Miller, I'll give you something other than Malice in the Palace, and maybe we'll get into that if you if there's if it comes up if you want to say anything about it, we can. But I'll give you something else. Reggie Miller goes on the Dan Patrick show a lot. I hear a lot of Reggie's thoughts. He's been a very prominent voice in the NBA for a long time. He will take it to his grave that your Pacers team would have beaten the Lakers in the 0-4 Finals. Do you feel that's the case? One hundred percent.
1: We and and I think that the part of the reason he feels so strongly about that is he feels like the loss to Detroit was on him. Uh, he he had a chance to dunk a ball and he laid it up, and Tayshaun Prince came and blocked it, and that forced Game Six. We could have taken a three-one lead, I believe, or maybe that closed it out. I can't remember, but it was an, it was an instrumental play. And, and Reggie uh, at the time, him and I were pretty close. We used to go to dinner on the road and talk a lot because we were the older guys on the team. And uh, we didn't go out. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, but I know he took that really hard. Uh, And then, yeah, because Detroit ended up winning it uh, and then the next fall happened, that's why the next fall happened. Rick Carlisle was the coach of the Detroit Pistons before they won the championship. He felt like he got his career there cut short And that he, that was his team. Like he built that team and then they win a championship. And then they come here and they beat us here and win the championship against the Lakers or whoever it was that year. And so the next fall, in the fall of 2004, we're playing them. We're playing the returning world champions. And and Rick Carlisle wanted to send a message because we were better. We were still better. And we got Steven Jackson, which made us even better. And he wanted to send a message. There was no reason to have starters in the game that late. It was the only reason was to send a message, to try to beat them so badly. The game was out of hand. There was no reason Ron Artest and ben, ben Wallace should have been in the game. If they weren't, if they had just put in subs, like you do in every other NBA game to save your starters, you put in subs in a game that's out of hand, the brawl doesn't happen. I'm not putting it on Rick Carlisle completely, but both coaches could have said, hey, Let's tap the brakes, it's over. I'll take mine out if you take yours out. And the brawl never happens. And what, what, what could've, would've been had that night not happened. And that's the part that I, that I, I hate because the reactions of everybody, while I don't think they're justifiable, I think they're understandable. I don't think you can turn yourself into a victim because you ran up into the stands and started attacking normal sized people just because they threw something at you. I don't, I don't, I have poor violence. I cannot stand that people think, oh, I'm just gonna put my fists up and start hitting people for no reason. You didn't attack me, I'm not attacking you. I'll defend myself, but nobody attacked me. So I didn't have to defend myself. Thank God, I didn't want to. I didn't want to have to hit anybody that came onto the court. Everybody that came on the court was a normal sized human. And to my comment earlier in the podcast, this is the, fo- this is what I saw from every fan that came onto the court because we're bigger in real life. And they didn't want a piece of that. Nobody does. They think, oh yeah, I'm gonna go down there and beer muscles and all of a sudden they get in person. It's like, oh, you're literally twice my size. good. And that was the reaction to everybody. And still they got hit by giants. So that's the part that I, I, I hate that all of that happened as a result of something that should have happened that didn't, which is subs go in, starters go out. Pacers still win, but the game ends in a normal fashion, and there's no worse fight in NBA history.
0: So last thing on the Malice of the Palace, we'll move on. We won't do too much on this. But I'm curious because I know you didn't play in that game, right? You were you were sitting on the bench, yeah. and you, you were injured at the time, right? Yeah, my back. So what was your – when all this was going on, what was your role what were you trying to do were you trying to were there certain guys you were trying to get and pull out what were you doing
1: uh early on <clears throat> i'm just trying to stay in the bench area because i had been involved and i won't go in too far into detail but i had been involved in a big fight between the kings and the lakers where the benches cleared and went out the tunnel yeah and i remember one, that yeah and then there was one in orlando where bobby jackson threw a ball at tracy mcgrady but at the other end of the court and i stepped on the court i was out of the game i was playing but i was out of the game at the time and i just stepped on the court to get a better view of what was going on i wasn't rushing over there to join in i just wanted to see what was going on and then i realized oh yeah you have to stay off the court i got fined five thousand dollars and suspended the next game in miami because i stepped on the court during an altercation so i had those those memories in my mind uh, and by the way, the $5,000 fine, that's a lot of money. What people don't realize is the game suspension was 182nd of my pay. That's a big number for me. You know, so that meant that I couldn't go to the game in Miami. I'm sitting in a bar with Vlade Divac. We, we ordered a Corona because we had to sit in a bar in Miami and watch the game. We can't go to the arena. And I ordered a Corona that night. And me and Vladi toasted our Corona and said, man, this is the most expensive beer I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Uh, 5000 55000 was what I ended up spending on that corona because I couldn't play in the next game because I stepped on the court. So to answer your question about the malice in the palace, that's all I'm thinking. I'm not spending my money to go see what's going on in this childish brawl that's going on because somebody ran up into the stands to attack an almost-sized human. I'm not spending my money doing anything other than playing basketball or taking care of my family. So I earned playing basketball. I'm not going to give it away to punch a human. It's just dumb. I left a lot of clubs and a lot of bars throughout my career, throughout my life, because I know that there's always going to be that one drunk person that's going to come up and sucker punch me. Because if I fight back, look at Mike Tyson on the airplane recently. Mike was being good. Mike wasn't doing anything to that guy. And that guy is harassing him in his ear. Hey, you know what? You mess with a bull, you're going to get the horns. And that's the thing. I've left a lot of those scenarios over my life and my career because I'm not going to spend money to punch a human, to embarrass somebody, or to hurt somebody. And I know I can do it because I'm a big, strong guy. And so that was my mentality. First thing, things start going crazy. I'm like, I'm not spending my money on this. I've already spent too much money $55,000 fine or $5,000 fine, but one getting paid back then. And I was making more money at this time. And so I was like, I'm not spending my money on this. I'm not going to go punch somebody. I'm not going to go on the court at all. And then when they finally called the game, that's when I said, all right, let's go. And I just started shoving people towards the tunnel because they realized they couldn't get the game to finish. There was no way they were going to get the court cleared with players on there and players in the stands. So then it was like, all right, we're going to call the game. And that's when we just started rushing out. And I pushed guys. And then David Harrison, I saw, jump up into the crowd. He grabbed a chair and hit somebody. Uh, and I got beer and popcorn dumped all over me on the way out, threw my suit away didn't even try to clean that because I didn't want that memory um, but yeah it was it was uh, a terrible terrible night and my mentality was at first don't spend money and then when there was no security ever then it was like alright do I really need to start defending myself is it, is it, is it a, a situation where my, I'm actually in danger now and, and again nobody came up to me it was they came up to guys that had their fists like this that's who they came up to they didn't come up to me i'm just standing there and they're looking at me like i'm not messing with that guy and then the next guy's like this and attacks them nobody threw a punch at jermaine o'neill first nobody threw a punch at ron artest first nobody threw a punch at stephen jackson first no one threw a punch at david harrison first they were all antagonizers and that's what i hated about the Netflix special. And I love those guys, I have no problem with them, but I had a problem with the Netflix special when you're trying to say you were a victim in the situation that you instigated, you started it. Yes, somebody threw something at you. Absolutely. Your reaction was to run up in the stands and try to murder somebody and you hit the wrong guy first. And then all hell breaks loose. So yeah, I had a problem with the whole night. Uh, again, I have poor violence. I think there's always a solution that can be done without using resorting to that. Uh, and it has a lot to do with the fact that I was hit and manhandled quite a bit by my giant brothers when I was a little kid. And I know how it feels, and I don't want anybody else to feel that way. So again, that's that's my personal reason of why I'm such a pacifist when it comes to that stuff, uh, because I know what it feels like to get hit and be held against your will, and it's not a good feeling. I don't want to make anybody feel that way.
0: Scott, we've got a little under 15 minutes here, so let's do a lightning round here on the remaining questions. Uh, last thing on the Pacers, Reggie's mentioned that that in the during those Eastern Conference Finals in 04, he had talked about how there was a little bit of an identity crisis with the team, where Ron Artest felt like it was his team, Jermaine O'Neal felt like it was his team, Reggie felt like it was his team. Whose team was it? Nobody's. That's the problem.
1: Um, that, that is absolutely true. And, you know, every NBA team has their two best players. Not every NBA team has a superstar. And there's only about five to 10 NBA superstars in the league at any one time. There's never 20, there's never 30. I'm talking about the guy that's going to give you those numbers every single night and can drag a team to being better all by themselves. There's only five to 10 of those in the league at any given time. And right now I'd say it's closer to five than 10. But when you have four guys that all think it's their team, yeah, you're gonna have an identity crisis because the problem is you can only have one best player and then you have one A. You have number one and then you have one A. One A thinks he's one but acknowledges that number one is number one. So he compliments one, 1A. One If 1A thinks he's one and does not compliment one, and then there's two, three, and four that all think they're one, and they don't compliment, that's exactly what it is. That's And that's every NBA player, or every NBA team. It's the failure of role players to recognize that they're role players. And every single player in the NBA, besides those five to 10 superstars, is a role player. The guys that learn how that learn how that works early are the ones that last in the league. Because because everybody is a role player. I don't care who you think you are. Once you get to the NBA, if you're not LeBron, you're a role player. If you're not Giannis, you're a role player. If, you know Maya. If you're not Shaq or Kobe, or you're not Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen was a role player. He's a Hall of Famer, but he was a role player, and he got it. He was one A. But when he went it went to Houston, he wasn't one. He wasn't even one A, and that's why it didn't work down there. They had she- uh they had Hakeem and Charles and Scotty, and they had incredible t- role players around them. But apparently, something didn't work. Uh, maybe it was just their age. But yeah, sorry, I know what you said. Lightning round.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. it was a tough question. It was a loaded question. Uh, you play on the '07 Cavs, which were the team that was just dis- in terms of. The, the new millennium, that's probably the most disrespected finals team. Whenever anyone b- talks about it, it's LeBron put that team on his back. He elevated the team to the finals. They're the worst team to ever play in the finals. How do you feel about that reputation of that team? Those
1: are non-NBA fans
0: that think that. Those
1: are, those are people that don't understand team sports. Uh, every basketball fan, every real basketball fan, knows what our record was. I think we won 55 games that year. We had the best record in the East. LeBron didn't do all that by himself. And LeBron will tell you the same thing. It's a team game. And if, if we had been on the verge of not making the playoffs and all of a sudden LeBron goes on a five-game tear at the end of the season and we get into the playoffs and then he drags us to the NBA Finals, that's one thing. We had the best record in the, in the East that year. That's not one player. That's not even two players. That's a whole team. So you can, call again, we were all role players, and we all fit our role. We had a bunch of old guys like myself that were at the end of the bench. Daniel Marshall, David Wesley. We came in once in a while to give some stability. That was our role. We weren't going in there trying to take uh, Zajunas Bogalski's minutes or Anderson Berejel's minutes or Damon uh, Jones's minutes or Booby Gibson's minutes. We were going in there to be our role, to play our role, to give some experience uh, from the end of the bench. And that's that, there was a, there's a whole team full of, you can say it, role players. And that's fine. But everybody played.
0: Oh, Scott, I can't hear you. Scott, I you now you're back. I think you're back okay. now. Yeah.
1: All right. Yeah, I got a call. I just hit it off. <laughs> so we're a team of role players that, that played their role. We, and that's why we got to the NBA Finals. That's why we had the best record in the East. Uh, we got swept in the finals because we played against the San Antonio Spurs, who were a well-oiled machine at that time. Uh, you would like to think that Tim Duncan was at the end of his career then, but he clearly wasn't, and he played what I think ten more years after that. Um, so, uh, yeah, we. I, when people say oh, that LeBron dragged this garbage roster to the NBA Finals, uh, you're not a basketball fan. You don't understand team sports, and also you don't even know how to play basketball.
0: I love it. Okay, so a couple more things here, and then we'll sign off for now. But you go over to the 08 Celtics. You get to finish a champion on top. I'm going to throw a name out there. Let's see if you remember this guy. He played in the preseason camp and got cut. Jackie Manuel. He played at 05 North Carolina Tar Heels. You remember him? Nope. Okay. (laughs) That's fine. Well, he coached at Valpo when I was at Valpo, and what he said was after every preseason, after every practice, Kevin Garnett would get all the young guys around his locker, and they would he'd tell stories for about 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and just give advice to these young guys. That was just a team full of so many characters. That had to be a lot of fun to be a part of, I would think.
1: Uh, Kevin was one of those guys, Reggie is also in the category of guys I hated playing against. I hated them both until I was teammates with them. And it's because they're competitors. It's because they don't back down their bullies in their, in their respective way or manner of being a bully. And Kevin was a guy that you wanted to be on his team. I didn't like Kevin personally uh, off the court, but it's just because we're from way different areas. We're from way different things. We have very different interests. Uh, but I love being teammates with Kevin for many of those reasons that you mentioned, the the, the stories. Uh, but his relentless pursuit of making sure everybody was held accountable. You know, he was there early. He didn't say, get here early and stay late. He got there early and stayed late. He didn't, he didn't just talk. He walked the walk. Uh, and that's what I love about Kevin. And I wish that we had played together longer. I wish that I had a healthier body at that stage in my career that I could have stuck around uh, or, or at least played with him earlier in my career. Uh, but it wasn't meant to be. But yeah, just a great teammate, a uh, great example on the court of uh, how to be a good teammate. And talk about being a role player. Him and Ray Allen both were the role players for for one. And one was Paul Pierce. Now, there was days when it was when number one was Ray. And there was days when number one was Kevin Garnett. But, but from beginning to end, it was Paul Pierce and Kevin was 1A and Ray was 1B. And that's why it worked for us because they played a role. And you can't have three guys. Uh, look at the Lakers this year. Great example.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Last thing I want to know, Scott. You, last thing, it goes back to Survivor. And you were there for one of the scariest moments in the show's history. For those who might not remember, there were several people who got heat exhaustion when they were running a challenge on sand. It looked like it was extreme. It had to be extremely hot. We don't know how hot it was. You would know. Um, Caleb Reynolds gets medically evacuated from the show. Scary moment. And then I was just curious, how scary was that experience? Did you guys think his life was in jeopardy? And what did they do afterwards? Did they give you a bunch of water? Did they give you food? Did they realize they screwed up by putting you out on the sand on that hot day? Um.
1: So so leading up to that, I think we were still in the stage where they were saying boil boil your water before you drink it. Uh, and I think after that, they said, "Don't worry about boiling your water. We put the additive in there that kills everything, so oh. you water. So just drink." Just drink a lot more water. Um, I think the additive personally was in there the whole time because <laughs> yeah. I I almost got out of the game after the first challenge. Personally, I went way too hard in the first challenge, and I almost it was behind the cameras, behind the scenes. It was in medical after the, after the first challenge, but I overdid it. I hadn't had enough water. I hadn't eaten much, uh, and. I went into heat exhaustion, but it just happened that it wasn't while well, the cameras were on. Um, With Caleb's, I don't know that his life was actually in jeopardy, but I'm not a doctor. I can't speak for, for what he was told. Um, there were so many people crowding around him, uh, pouring water on him, uh, and, and I heard, again, I don't know. I heard he never even went to the hospital. I heard that he just got back to camp and went home. Like he didn't even stay because you know you get voted out and they keep everybody in quarantine. Yeah. I heard that he didn't even go to the hospital. They just put him on a plane home after he recovered. Uh, but again, I, do, I don't know that. I don't. I wasn't with Caleb. I was still in the game. Uh, but that's what I heard. I heard that that he was never really in in true jeopardy of dying. Uh, but. It did make a great episode. Um, he was out of the game, and so it skipped the tribal council. Uh, we ended up not really getting hurt because we were we lost that challenge, <laughs> but they lost a player. Uh, Beauty tribe lost a player anyway, so we ended up not being hurt because uh, we would have lost another player uh, if we had gone to a tribal uh, for that. So, um, you know, good for me because I was in every episode. Uh, but and I was at every tribal council except for the one uh, where Brains went and voted out uh, uh, Liz. So, um, you know, selfishly, I'm kind of bummed I didn't get to be at every tribal council because you know, we we took pride in every loss, yeah. <laughs> as a bronze we, just, we loved losing, we just kept on doing it. We were the best at losing, uh, so we just we wanted to keep that streak alive. And unfortunately, Brains beat us one time in the losing department, so we. Didn't get to go to tribal once.
0: <laughs> All right, Scott, you and I both got a run now. I want to thank you so much for coming on. Before we go, I want you to give give you a chance to plug anything you're working on, any projects, charity, social media. Go ahead and just tell us what we could be checking out.
1: Well, um, I'm always doing something with with charitable uh, organizations locally. I just hosted the Carmel Gala on Saturday night. I am seated. I didn't host it. Um, and that is uh, benefits the Carmel Youth Assistance Program. Uh, that is a great thing for at-risk children in our area. You know, people think, "Oh, Carmel." If you know Indiana, Carmel is known as kind of a wealthier community. Uh, but there's still at-risk youth here. There's still kids that go to bed hungry. There's still kids that can't get a ride here or there. Don't get to participate in after-school activities because they can't afford them. Uh, and what do those kids end up doing? Well, they they do stuff. They do illegal stuff, yeah. Uh, and so, if you can keep kids busy and give them the support that they need, uh, and it, it was a big deal to me this one specifically because I was one of those kids. I grew up in Del Mar, California. Uh, I was not a wealthy kid like all my friends. Uh, I did get bored. I did not get a lot of after-school uh, activities. My parents were working, doing their best. And so, uh, for for me to to have had something like that, uh, made might have kept me from being arrested as a kid, but. Uh, that, that record seals, so that's all I'm going to say about that. But now, uh, you know, there will be another one coming. We're going to Wyoming this summer. Don and I, my wife uh, and I, we're going to Celebrities for a Cause. Um, this year, it's Mental Health Awareness, uh, and that has got a big lineup of celebrities. If you can look that one up, it's, it's incredible. I'm like, there's going to be more celebrities than people attending. Um, <laughs> it, it is a huge list, and there's a couple Survivor uh, Athletes. Uh, John Rocker. And like I said, I believe the, the other guy you mentioned is going to be there as well. Culpepper. Uh, Pepper, Yeah. I, b- I believe Brad is on the list. So um, there's that. Uh, but really, my wife and I are realtors here in Carmel, Indiana. We sell houses. You can go to our website, Uh we're, we're revamping it. Don't give us too much crap about our website right now. <laughs> we're revamping it. We're rebranding. Uh, but we're selling houses here. So if you want to sell, now's the time. Give me a call.
0: <laughs> and what's your social media?
1: Uh, Scott Pollard31, 1 T S C O T Pollard, P O L A R D 3 1. Uh, that's my Twitter. And on Instagram, I'm at Scott P31, just my first name, P31. Uh, and Facebook, you can just look me up by my name. Uh, I'm, for some reason, Instagram won't verify me, but I'm verified on Twitter, so you know its name. Instagram, I don't have many followers because I don't think a lot of people believe it's me, but it is me, Scott P31. Same thing on Facebook. I have to accept you as a as a guest on Facebook, or a friend on Facebook, whatever that is. Uh, but the rest of them, you can just follow. I don't I don't block out people, uh, even if you don't have anything nice to say. It's hard for me to block you unless you do something <laughs> really stupid.
0: Well, Scott, it was an awesome time talking with you. Thank you so much, and we'd love to have you back maybe next year during college hoop season. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on, Jack. All right, y'all, that does it today for my conversation with Scott Pollard. What a treat he was. So many great stories, so much interesting stuff about the old NBA from the 2000s. It was really interesting because I feel like if you were to take a snapshot of that era, Scott Pollard was there for a lot of those huge moments, those Kings-Lakers series, Pacers-Pistons, Malice at the Palace, two different final series later in the 2000s. And I just love talking with him. That was a lot of fun. And, of course, he played Survivor 2. Okay, so guys, if you liked today's episode, make sure you subscribe to the Jack Vita Show on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, wherever it is that you are listening to this podcast. Hit subscribe. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We're going to be back soon, next week, with Brian Erlacher for what should be a very fun conversation. And also, you guys can follow me at Jack Vita Show on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Until our next episode with Brian Urlacher, I'm Jack Vita, bringing the dancing lobsters.